Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. I have mixed feelings about Halloween. I kind of, you know, I go up and down. First off, it's the only time that your neighbors are expecting you to come to their front door, right? Like, that is never a thing. Like, aren't you scared every time your doorbell rings? Like, unless you know you're getting a package... If your doorbell rings twice, which means someone wants you to come to it, you're like, oh, no, what is about to happen, right? But Halloween, man, you're, like, ready. Uh, I like that. I think I'm pro-costume, actually. I like that people can, you know, do that. I can't do it, but for people that are free enough in themselves, that's great, you know, to have a costume, right? Um, I actually, uh, the reasons I don't like it, though, are uh, sometimes it gets a little spooky and weird. We've got, like, dead bodies just littering our neighborhood, you know, and normally that would be a cause for alarm. I don't know why that's a good thing right now. Uh, I also don't get into really, like, bloody kind of scary costumes. We went to the Fright Night here at Lake the other day, and some of these children were just terrifying, right? Like, just blood dripping. Like, they spent, these kids, they're the same ones that can't even, like, take a shower before school, right? You know, you're in middle school, it happens. I'm not judging anybody. And yet, uh, they're the same ones that spent like 30 minutes doing face makeup, you know, trying to get ready for this Halloween Friday night. I also don't like Halloween. I found a new reason, actually. Uh, as you know, middle schoolers are very insightful, and they'll uh, attack you where it hurts the most. I was uh, wearing a just a regular, like, ringed T-shirt, you know, with, like, the cuffs, kind of like 70s style. Uh, I didn't think anything of it, but it'll become important later on in this story because... I think that's the only reason, I don't know. Uh, someone came up to me and said, oh, I like your costume, are you Jeffrey Dahmer? I was not wearing a costume. That was not nearly as bad as when I, uh, the second time that it happened, I was just walking through the hallways here at Lake Middle School and this group of middle school boys, you can tell like this little sixth grade boy is like, oh dude, look, it's Jeffrey Dahmer. Like not even asking me, is that that costume? Like he was just like mad respect for your obvious costume, buddy. Uh, and now I need a haircut. That's what I've learned from this entire experience. I'll, be, I'll have a shaved head next week. I don't know. I might look like another serial killer then. Uh, sadly, statistically, most of them do look like me. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, today, if this is your very first... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let that sink in. Uh, if this is your very first uh, day at Dwell Church, you're going to think I'm a crazy person. And uh, if you don't already... Uh, today we are talking about demons. Now, uh, we don't normally talk about demons very often at Dwell Church. Uh, we actually have a conviction here at Dwell Church that God's word should be the center of everything that we say and do. And you know, there's like a lot of like theological underpinnings behind that, but even more than that, I think just very practically, like we are uh, the people of God, we are the church of God, God has revealed himself to us through the Bible, and so we center every single thing that we do around that. And so what that means is, uh, at least for us very practically, it means I don't sit down and look at the calendar and go, oh snap, demons, Halloween, we need to tie those two together so I can trash Halloween. What it means is we're going through the book of Matthew, and uh, by the grace and mysterious providence of God, today we come up to uh, a part where Jesus interacts with demons. So today, Matthew and Jesus are going to tell us about demons. We're going to let the word of God be our guide and our rule. And today, we too are going to talk about demons. Keeping that in mind, we're going to use a rule of thumb that C.S. Lewis came up with uh, for our discussion today. He says this in the beginning, or sort of the, the intro to the screw tape letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. 
One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So what we're going to do is just sort of like try and thread that needle, try and sort of like find this like middle ground. And, and I feel like we're, we're hitting one side really well where we don't talk about demons all that often. But today we're going to actually dive fully into it, recognizing this is like once or twice a year that we actually get the opportunity to do this and just try and explore this like challenging and difficult topic uh, that we find in Scripture. What I want to do uh, to begin with is actually uh, talk about what you can and can't do in regards to the evidence of demons in Scripture. I'm going to spend a little bit of extra time here because I don't want to just teach you about demons. I want to teach you about how to read Scripture. So these are not just like rules for how you can follow, like what you can do with demons, but they're actually like good principles just to apply to biblical reading in general, okay? So here we go, things that you can't do. You can't ignore them and hope that they go away. Here it is difficult because Jesus talked about them and to them. We cannot simply say that we're just all about Jesus and then ignore the fact that demons are here present in Scripture. Secondly, you can't simply write them off as ancient foolishness. Uh, to do so is to actually call into question the entire authority of Scripture, which you can definitely do. That is your prerogative. You can ask those questions. We're not afraid of those questions here at Dwell Church. But you cannot just write demons off as being like, well, we live in 2022. These guys lived in, you know, the 30s of A, B, C, no, A.D., I can't get that right, uh, so they don't know as much as we do. That's actually something called chronological snobbery. Isn't that a cool word to offend people with? Chronological snobbery, you're just a chronological snob. Uh, and basically what it is is this idea that, you know, as we progress in time and throughout history, we are getting smarter and everyone else is dumber. We would say, why can we trust what they say about demons? They didn't even know what an elevator was. The reason why chronological snobbery is not an accurate way to live your life is because, I believe it was in the past 12 months, I'm not really sure because this world moves pretty fast, there were a group of people, a massive group of people, a, a movement of people, if you will, that were cooking chicken in NyQuil. Do you guys remember this TikTok trend? Is that not evidence enough that we're not getting smarter, right? Like, we are, don't assume that you're just naturally smarter than someone living in the first century. It's not true, okay? It's just not accurate. Do you realize how dangerous and harmful that is? Not to mention the fact that if you put me next to somebody in the first century and you told us both to start a fire without matches, one of us is going to succeed and the other one is going to be embarrassed, all right? I'll have no way to cook my chicken in my NyQuil, right? Now, uh, I say all that to say you really cannot look at the Bible and just be like, hey, they were dumb, and I am smart. They weren't idiots, right? Uh, they may have even had a better outlook on the world in some ways by virtue of the fact that their worldview actually allowed for this kind of stuff, right? I want you just to take a second here. We're going to get kind of like vaguely philosophical, if that's all right. Uh, most of your thinking is influenced by empirical thinking, right? Like post sort of like industrial revolution, everything is based on like what can I prove via evidence? And it's weird that human beings have lived for a very, very long time, and only very recently has that become the singular, dominating way that we process information. Which means that only very recently, post sort of empirical evidence uh, shift in the world, would you say to yourself, I've never seen a demon, I don't see any published, you know, white papers on them, and so obviously they don't exist. 
these people with a completely different worldview were not burdened by such a way of thought. How close-minded are we that we read something? And in fact, this story was corroborated by at least two witnesses and wrote about it in some of the like, largest collections of ancient writings of all time. They were actually wrote about it in Mark and in Luke and in Matthew. And we think, well, I bet they all just sort of made this up. I bet they didn't really get it. They don't get it. They're old. I'm, I'm new. I'm young. I'm new. I'm a new person. And I'm smarter than they are, right? That is some like hardcore chronological snobbery right there. Uh, the third thing that you can't do is just Bible them away. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, and especially if you're churchy like me, and you have a lot of biblical training, uh, there is always this temptation to find your way to Bible your way out of this, right? You're like, well, maybe if I look it up in the Greek, actually demon-possessed just means, like, guy kind of weird. No, it doesn't really work that way, right? And in fact, demon generally means demon in the Greek, right? Uh, and so you really cannot have any sense of biblical inerrancy of believing that Scripture is what it says it is and also completely erase demons. You would need one of those, like, Thomas Jefferson Bibles. Have you guys ever seen this? He, like, dude literally cut out all the parts of his Bible that he didn't like. He was like, ah, I don't know about this, demons, that's kind of weird. And just, like, so you can go to the Smithsonian, actually. His Bible is sitting there, and it's, like, got a bunch of holes through it. It looks like Swiss cheese, right? Uh, that is the type of logic. I know Thomas Jefferson was smart, not trying to be chronologically snobbery uh, to a few hundred years ago. That's the kind of, like, uh, nonsense that you would have to go into to be able to have, like, I believe in the Bible, but only most of it. It's a really weird thing, too, to think, oh, well, I trust these guys with my life. They're telling me about Jesus. That's the most important thing to me. I don't know if I believe what they said about demons. I'm just going to cut that out, right? It's strange. The final thing that you can't do is understand them completely. Scripture offers no comprehensive description of demons. There's no sort of appendix that's just like, here's all about demons. They pop in and out of the story completely randomly. Um, someone actually once said that the difference between sci or fantasy stories and sci-fi stories is that sci-fi turns science into magic and fantasy turns magic into science. Ooh, think about that a little bit, right? But that's the kind of stuff that we like to do, right? All of a sudden you're watching a show and it's about witches and you have to figure out like, okay, so what can witches do? What can witches not do? What's the rules here, right? Like, uh, that's in the entire Harry Potter series, right? It's just like, here's what they can do, here's what they can't do, and that's what we want about demons, right? why most of those stories and movies and books and stuff that you read or watch about demons, they all turn it into like, well, here's the very specific limits of them. Here's what they can do. Here's what you can do against them. Here's, what, here's what's happening here. The Bible does not do that. The Bible does not come up with, you know, Matthew's guide to fantastic demons and where to find them, right? It just says, hey, Jesus walked up on a demon, which presumes you understand somewhat what he's talking about, and then just moves through the story. So it's not really, really possible, I think, to have the, you know, fully fleshed out uh, demonology that we're really, really wanting. Uh, here's what you can do, okay? So some things that you can do. You can, at some level, uh, call them mental disorders. Now, I want to be really, really careful on this one. You can do this. I'm not necessarily recommending that you do do this. Uh, but that has been one of the ways that modern people like to translate and understand what demons are. They say, oh, this person, they said he has a demon. Maybe he just has schizophrenia, right? Maybe they just didn't have a terminology for that yet, and we are smarter now, and so we know that that's what this actually is. Now, <clears throat> it's a tough line to walk. 
uh, it's tough, if for nothing else, that sometimes we see in Scripture uh, that Jesus would heal all types of diseases, and in the same sentence, it says he would cast out demons. And so in some way, things that are like physically happening to you are slightly different than the way that Scripture would have thought about demons. Um, it's also a little bit complex, I think, because if you're a person who likes Jesus, who is at all curious about Jesus, who is at least agnostic, at least of the belief and opinion that there is some sort of supernatural, non-human force that is out there in the world. If you are that person, then you have to allow for the potential that maybe, just maybe, demons and mental disorders could even be somehow related. Now, I don't want to say, I know I'm, I'm like drifting dangerously close to crackpot territory, right? You guys are all like, oh no, this guy just says if you have schizophrenia, you have a demon. No, I am not saying that at all. What I am, in fact, saying is that a lot of times, these mental disorders and diseases that affect our mind are particularly evil and heinous. They are particularly chaotic. They are, if nothing else, a result of sin entering into the world uh, that even our bodies would end up being broken in this way. So what I'm trying to point out is that we want to delineate and say, hey, they didn't understand. Actually, that wasn't a demon. This is just a mental disorder. And I am saying that at some level, the two could actually be connected, that at some level, everything that is actually wrong from, for our bodies, in our bodies, is a result of the fall, is a result of sin, is a result of human beings walking away from God. Now, I know that is like a complex and narrow line to walk. I'm just trying to say that even if you're of the opinion that mental disorder or demons are actually mental disorders, then when you come around on the back end, you still have to sort of attribute all of this to supernatural factors that are ruling our world. What else you can do is fully believe in them but never see one. That's okay. I'm giving you like you know, freedom to actually think and believe that way. You can actually say, hey, I've never seen one, but I actually believe in it. This too feels like a difficult line to walk. You almost like want to say that you believe, or want to see it, right? But we don't do the same for other things in our life, right? Like there's plenty of things that I haven't seen that I believe in. So that's a totally okay thing to do. You can also believe that they might look different today. There is a theory out there that if demons are around and active today in America, then they have changed their tactics. In fact, if demons were running around in the clear in obvious ways, uh, wouldn't it give more people belief in the supernatural? Like if you just regularly saw demons, if our hospitals had like a demon treating wing on one side, right, and they were just like commonplace in our society, wouldn't you think then people would be more inclined to believe in God? So just if, again, I'm getting into weird crackpot territory, I hope you're ready for this, just if there are demons, would it behoove them, would it suit them to be running around exactly as we see it in the biblical canon, running around, messing with people, creating havoc, causing chaos, that kind of stuff, or would it suit them better to subtly change their tactics? C.S. Lewis thinks so. He wrote this, if devils exist, their first aim is to give you an anesthetic to put you off your guard. Only if that fails do you become aware of them. Now, uh, I believe, and I've heard uh, seemingly to me at least reputable reports of missionaries who are operating in different parts of the world uh, where sort of more obvious demonic activity is still active. And I don't have any sort of category for how that works in my life. 
What I instead want to do is open myself up to the idea that if demons are real, that they might be operating on humanity in a number of different ways, which we are going to talk about in just a second. The final thing that you can do is you can say, I don't really know. That's okay. That's allowed, right? You don't have to have this, like, firm, fully fleshed out demonology. You don't have to have this complete picture of what demons are and have all the answers. It's okay. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to continue researching and continue looking into it. So what we're going to do today, actually, is we're going to do just a little bit of that research. I'm sorry this is coming off more like a lesson in class uh, than a sermon. But I just want to make sure that we cover this completely because we don't have all that many opportunities to. So get out your pens and pencils. There will be a quiz later. I hope that you're ready. Uh, the term paper is going to be bonkers, but I am ready, and I hope that you are. Are you ready? That's enough. Uh, well, in the Old Testament, there are not a ton of res uh, references to demons specifically. In fact, only twice do we see the Hebrew word for demon. Now, there are spiritual forces, there are crazy things that happen, uh, but not really demons. Some could argue uh, that lower G gods, like Baal, if you were here during our Judges series, we talked a lot about him. Uh, lower G gods in the Old Testament could be demonic forces, but it's not really clear uh, that that would be the case, and that's not how the Old Testament writers were necessarily thinking of them. As far as the whole Bible is concerned, demons were actually most active during the time of Jesus. So across a history of the Bible, which co covers thousands of years, the highest concentrations of demons was actually found in Jesus' time. Uh, which maybe makes sense, because if they were opposed to Jesus, which you would think he would be their chief enemy, that would be when they are the most active themselves. Now, uh, in the New Testament, there are three different words or terms used for demons in the New Testament. There's diamonion. I'm not saying that right, but none of you guys should judge me. Uh, it's used 60 times in the New Testament, but only 50 times, or sorry, it's used 60 times in the New Testament, and 50 of those are during the Gospels. Uh, the other words that are used are pneuma, uh, usually with a qualifying active, so pneuma means spirit. Uh, that's used 52 times with a qualifying adjective such as unclean or evil or angelos, all right? So those are kind of the, the main ways uh, that they would talk about demons in the New Testament. Jesus directly interacts with demons eight different times, all right? Eight different times. I'm going to run through these real quick just so you understand. You can sort of like track these in your own mind. If you want to do the full demon term paper, uh, sketch these down as I'm going super, super fast. I hope you're ready, okay? So if, the, if you're sitting here and you're like, demons are going to be my new project. I'm going to work on this for the next month. This part is for you. You ready? Uh, Jesus' temptation, where he interacts directly with the devil himself. Uh, that's Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. Uh, the blind man that Jesus cast a demon out, we're going to see that in a few weeks in Matthew 9. The blind and mute man in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. The Canaanite woman's daughter in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. The man in the synagogue in Mark 1 and Luke 4. The Gerasene or uh, Gerardine demoniac, which is who we're talking about today, uh, in Matthew 8, Mark 5, and Luke 8. The boy with seizures, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, and the silencing of the demons in Matthew 8, 16, Mark 11, I mean Mark 1, and Luke 4. All right? Hopefully you got all of that. Here is what someone actually put together a list, someone much smarter than me. By the way, uh, implicit in today's sermon is an advertisement for a good Bible dictionary. You need one, okay? 
Uh, I actually have one I'm looking to get rid of. If anybody wants it, it is yours for free. Uh, it is the biggest book that I own, and I need to give it away. So um, I would highly, highly recommend, if you're ever curious about stuff like this, uh, a good Bible dictionary is where you want to look for it. Uh, the IVP Bible dictionary is really, really solid, or a Bible or uh, encyclopedia Bible background is really, really solid also from IVP. If not, But the other one that I really like is the Evangel Evangelical Dictionary of the Bible. So check those out if you are at all interested. The New Testament describes what demons do as physical, social, and spiritual uh, symptoms of demonic control. There is no exhaustive list, but here's the physical symptoms. They include mutinous, blindness, self-inflicted wounds, crying or screaming, convulsions, seizures, falling to the ground, rolling around, foaming in the mouth, grinding of the teeth, and rigidity. Inhuman strength and staying active all day and all night. Social symptoms include dwelling in unclean places and going around naked, which we'll see today. Uh, the spiritual symptoms include supernatural abilities such as recognition of the person of Christ and reaction against him, again we'll see today, and the ability to tell the future as in Acts 16. None of these symptoms by themselves should be seen as proof of demonization. Rather, they are examples of the types of manifestations that come with demonic infestation. Wow. Scott Moreau going hard right there, okay? Um, so... With all of that, that's all the information that you need to know about demons right there. So now you are as expert as anyone else. Do you see what I'm saying, though, that the Bible does not ever sit down and say, okay, we're going to open up to this chapter in this book, and it's going to tell you everything that you need to know about demons? That's a pretty scattered and all-around kind of list, right? And especially considering that most of those come from the Gospels and some of them from elsewhere in the New Testament, we really, really, really just don't have all that much data. So what can we do in response demons. Well, if most of our data comes from the time of Jesus, we need to ask, what did he do in response to demons? In all of his interactions with demons, Jesus consistently shows us two things. We're going to see these same two things today. First, he had authority over them, and second, he had compassion for the people that they afflicted. He had authority over these demons, and he had compassion for the people that they afflicted. We definitely see that in our story today. But maybe you're in this place where you're, like, so hung up on a demon, and, like, you're trying to figure out how do I discern where's a demon, where's a demon not, you know? Halloween makes that extra tricky, right? You have no way. There's kids pretending to be demons. Are they demons? I don't think so, right? Like, it's all just kind of confusing. Maybe you're so hung up on that that this is actually a simple guide that you can use to how to respond to someone that you might even think has a demon or something like that because... Not that I want you pointing people out, because this is actually a pretty kind and generous way to operate with people in general, right? Like, what if you saw someone that seemed as if they had something kind of crazy going on with them? Maybe you thought it might be demonic influence. Maybe you don't. And you treated them as if you had some sort of, like, authority over the thing that was afflicting them. Because, by the way, when Jesus sent out his disciples in Matthew 10, he actually gave them authority to cast out these demons. That authority, by extension, extends out to you. What if you treated it as if you had authority over it, but also compassion for the person who's experiencing it? This actually changes the way that we look at a lot of things that happen to people and the way that people act. Like, what if you treated the, like, funky, messed up thing about a person as if it was separate from them, as if it were an actual external factor affecting them, and then you were free to have compassion over the person 
who was doing whatever the thing was, right? Instead, what we tend to do is sort of take that external factor, something that's happening to them, and apply it directly to the person. Well, that person is a crazy person. No, that person has probably just been through a lot in their life that you don't actually know or understand. Or you say like, oh man, I think that person is demonic. Well, if it is an actual demonic force, then it is something that is happening to that person, not something that person is doing to everyone else. And the way that you would respond to that is by having compassion over them, right? Like when someone gets the flu, you don't say, hey, that is a gross and sick and nasty person. You say, that is a person that has the flu. I should bring them some chicken soup. And the same should be true whenever we interact with someone, no matter what's going on. I don't think you even have to go through the work of like trying to diagnose, is this a demon? Is this not a demon? What's going on? I think all that you have to do is actually have compassion for the person that is experiencing whatever they're experiencing. And recognize that through Jesus, you have some capacity, I'm not going to say what, but some capacity to care for them, possibly even to heal them. What this does is destroys shame in the relationship, right? It's no longer embarrassing. It's no longer something that you should feel bad about as a person if you're affected by something so profound. But it also gives you, as another human being, focus. Your job here is to have compassion for the person, to love that person, to care for them. So why have this particular story about demons? What is this particular one telling us about demons? Matthew is trying to tell us something, I think, about Jesus particularly. Now, if you're a Bible fan, you'll notice that this story is in two of the other Gospels. This one is far shorter. Uh, this one doesn't have all the big dramatic details about that. So, you know, none of the demons calling themselves legion. Uh, no big dramatic details like 2,000 pigs, which is just an absurd and unhealthy number of pigs. Have you ever been around pigs, like when they're actually in their natural habitat, not like trained home potbelly pigs? But we're talking like real pigs. You don't want to be around 2,000 of them, right? Uh, that is heinous, and we're going to lose that fight. Also, in the other stories, there are some different details. Like today, uh, it says that they are in the Gadarenes. The other stories say that they're in the Gerasenes. Uh, that's sort of like a way of saying, do you live in West Colfax or do you live in Denver? Uh, so the Gerasenes was like a bigger area. The Gadarenes was like a smaller sort of town. And even in Matthew, he says here that there are two men, but Mark and Luke say that there are, there's only one. I think there's a lot of different reasons why scholars have come up with this. Maybe Matthew was actually making up for another demon possession that he doesn't cover later. Uh, maybe he was, like, referencing two people because that's what it took to have, like, a qualified witness back in these times in, like, a court of law. Uh, we're really not sure. I think, though, rather than sort of getting hung up on, like, ah, the Bible is all different. They're all fighting each other. It says two men. It says one man. I can't trust any of this. This, in some ways, it being an innocuous kind of, like, change between the two, should give you some comfort to know that these people were not just sort of like copying each other's story. In fact, Mark's testimony was probably written first. Matthew was probably reading it while he was writing his testimony and came out with like a different response. If you went to court and you put two people up on the stand and you said, hey, uh, you two people, like uh, what happened in this incident? If they told you the exact same story, are you more suspicious or less suspicious? Like if it's word for word, they're like, and then the three guys walked in and they're both saying exactly the same thing. Aren't you more suspicious of that? These are two human beings that are writing this exact same story and their accounts align pretty accurately with some of the small details shifted around. 
So we need to ask, as we're entering into this story, now I've finally gotten to the text after the longest intro of all time, and I'm out of time, so I'll just stop talking. Uh, Matthew tells us, actually, uh, about Jesus in this short story. First, he tells us that the demons, in relating to Jesus, actually listened, obeyed, and feared. The demons actually listened, obeyed, and feared. Verse 28, it says, When he came to the other side, to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have, you to, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So what we need to do is ask, why is that significant? Why is that a big deal? Well, just a second ago, if you were here last week, you remember that Jesus just calmed a storm. And do you remember the disciples' reaction? The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? So the disciples are sitting there, and they're saying, like, who is this guy? How does this even work? He walks up on a guy with a demon, and they're like, Jesus, look out for this guy. How strange is that, that his own disciples don't know who he is, and yet demons are like, oh, no, it is Jesus. We are afraid of him. You can tell that they are scared that he is coming to torment up them. Uh, this idea before the time is not like, Jesus, we weren't expecting you for another 15 minutes, but more so that demons know the end of the story, that one day Jesus is going to conquer all and be in charge completely. And so they are saying, hey, Jesus, why are you here so early? You were here before the time. Have you already come to torment us? They know, too, present in this statement, that they have no defense against him. They did not say, Jesus is here. All right, let's go, right? Like, suit up. It is time for a fight. They said, why have you come to torment us? And then later on in the story, we see that they beg him to help them out. That is their only option here. I want you to notice the irony of this. That both here and every time that we see a demon throughout Scripture, they know exactly who Jesus is, and they are terrified of him. None of them are surprised. Because they know the power that Jesus has. They know the authority that he has been given. And the irony here is that his disciples, his followers, had no idea. He calms the storm, and they're like, what kind of a guy is this? He walks up on demons, and they're like, this is the son of God. It's just the heater. We're not going to die, I promise. Yeah, every once in a while, distraction gets so large, you just can't even ignore it anymore. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, someone just mouthed demons. That's not good. Um, <clears throat> the irony here is that the followers of Jesus had no idea how powerful he was, and the demons themselves knew exactly how powerful he was. I kind of wonder, as a follower of Jesus myself, like, how often am I missing out on the power that Jesus actually has? Like, how often am I actually taking stock of what Jesus is able to do? Like, even in the story, and I, I still don't know, I mean, I've been treating it as sort of like, a, I think last week I, I paraphrased the disciples as saying, like, what a guy, this Jesus, right? But I think it's a legitimate question. They're like, what sort of a man is this? He can calm the storm and the seas. They still don't quite understand yet at this point in the story that this is the Son of God, that this is the Messiah that they've been waiting for, and that this guy has authority over everything that has ever been created. And I wonder, because what happens, I think, in life is that there is this Jesus that actually exists in reality, right? Uh, bigger, more powerful. He is part of the Trinity. He is everything, right? And then there's also a Jesus that exists in our head. And if we're doing really well, those two people are basically the same person, right? 
But I think very often that Venn diagram gets shifted just a little bit. We get just a little bit off. We're not actually seeing the true Jesus because the true Jesus that I don't really take stock of enough is powerful enough to be in control over the entire universe. He has authority over demons. Uh, He has authority over the wind and the waves. He has authority over every single thing that has ever and will ever happened. Will ever happen. Uh, he has that authority over everything. That is not the way that I think of my Jesus. Very often I'm like, maybe if you could do something about this, God, can you help me out with this? Or I even think to myself, like, man, here's a problem. I guess I got to figure it out myself. That is not consistent with this picture that we see of Jesus. And it's not even of how the de- demons themselves think of Jesus. Then this happens. Verse 30 says this, Now a herd of pigs, many pigs, was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now before we go any further, uh, we need to recognize that Jesus totally punked these demons, right? Like He is like a total like gotcha moment. Uh, I think it's interesting, too, I almost named this sermon that one time that Jesus uh, answered the request of the demon, uh, because that's exactly what happened. They go, hey, uh, we know that you're about to whoop up on us. That's a southern phrase. I'm sorry about that. We know you're about to whoop up on us. So can we actually go into these pigs instead? And Jesus is like, sure, man, whatever you want. Wink, wink, right? They go into the pigs. All of a sudden, pigs, instant death, right? They just careen straight down into the hill. Uh, I don't know enough about any of this to know why that would happen. Uh, but I do feel like Jesus like pulled a fast one, right? Where he's like, oh, yeah, I'll give you what you want, demon. <laughs> Instant death from going into the pigs. Now, uh, if you were as Jewish as Matthew, you would know that this is bad news, right? Uh, pigs were not uh, kosher. It's almost a joke, but it's literally uh, a big deal, right? Like no pigs. Uh, that was an unclean animal. You would have also noticed, if you were as Jewish as Matthew, that this guy is hanging out around tombs. So that is like double uncleanliness, right? Both of those things were happening at the same time. So to be thrown into the pigs was a big deal and very, very bad. Verse 33 picks back up and says, The herdsmen fled, and going into the city they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now here, here Matthew is begging you to ask why they would ask him to leave. Like that is the, the prevailing question that Matthew is posing before you. Why in the world would they ask this guy uh, to, so powerful that he should leave? First off, I believe it was because he messed with their livelihood. This was a lot of pigs. Like I said, the other Gospels tell us 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of money back in the day, right? This is a whole barbecue empire that is being built here, right? Matthew shows that Jesus was not even worried about their livelihood. I mean, he probably didn't like it. Like I said, their pigs and tombs and all of these things were unclean for a Jew to associate. But most of all, Matthew shows us instead that Jesus was concerned about these two guys' life. Now, I want you to just imagine that you're living in this small town. Uh, you've got this huge pig empire out here on the outskirts of town, and you've also got this crazy guy who knows what's going on with him that is living among the tombs. You can't even chain him up. He's running around. He's creating problems. He's doing all this stuff. He's not allowing anyone to pass. 
you know how messed up it is that that guy becomes free, becomes a normal human being in the middle of society, is able to now operate as a human being and be a part of your village again? Do you know how crazy it is for you to then be like, yeah, but what about our pigs? Like, how dare you mess with our pigs, Jesus? That's not right. But that's exactly what happens. They come up to Jesus and they say, hey, you've got to get out of here. We want you to go. He did something great for the town, did something wonderful for these two guys' life. He did generally just a good thing of getting rid of the demon, and still they wanted him to go. And I think the reason behind it is because it affected their financial well-being, but also because it was just extremely messy. And I'm not using that in like an actual physical way, though 2,000 pigs dying in water would be a messy problem to have. I don't know how they fixed that uh, afterwards. I don't even want to talk about it all that much. It would be a very extreme and complex and messy situation. And that is what Jesus prioritized over having these guys continue to suffer. My last point for today is that Jesus messes up our lives, which is something you've never seen in a sermon on a slide before. I promise, right? Anybody? Nothing, okay. Jesus can be a little messy sometimes. The less messy things thing would have been to leave the pigs and the guy alone, but Jesus couldn't do that. He couldn't walk by and let this guy keep on suffering. So he did something messy and he did something extreme. And sometimes a particularly messy problem is going to require a messy solution. And if you want to talk about something that feels demonic in our lives today that we see all the time, we need to talk about drug addiction. One of my best friends, uh, and truly one of the greatest guys I've ever known, uh, was a heroin addict. <clears throat> he, could do, he could have done anything that he wanted to in life, and when he was doing well, it was just astounding what he could achieve. He was super, super smart, uh, brilliant guy. He was funny. He was friendly. He was likable. And when he was doing well, he was just soaring high. He was always just sort of like impressed on what he could do. And then, uh, somehow, the addiction would sort of, like, uh, grab hold of him again. In fact, there's some level with uh, heroin at which, once you've had it, there's never, like, really a season where you don't want it again. Like, even that's why, uh, if you've ever been familiar with, like, AA circles, they call themselves addicts or alcoholics or whatever for their lifetime, recognizing that the second they stop thinking of themselves that way, uh, they're more prone to slip up. And so, so was the case with my friend, right? And he knew, now it took a few weeks usually whenever he would sort of like get back on, he knew in that moment that the only solution for him to have a, a life, for him to continue living honestly so that he wouldn't like overdose and die, but also just for him to get back to society and to be able to operate was to totally pull the ripcord, check out of life, and go to a rehab center. Now I want you to like think about the weight of this because I had never considered this. Um, it wasn't like he would end up, you know, on the street while he was using, necessarily. It wasn't like he would, uh, you know, uh, lose his home or anything like that. He'd still be basically functioning in his world. And so, to have to go to rehab in that time meant that he had to give up all of that. If he had relationships, he had to put those on pause for a while. If he had a job, he had to quit that, not knowing if he'd be able to get it when he came back. Sometimes he was in school, trying to work through getting his degree, and that would be gone for a while. And all of this is because the severity of his situation required a messy and extreme solution. 
that the only way that he was hopeful that he could even progress past this was pulling that ripcord, going to a live-in rehab center, getting clean for a few weeks, and then coming back to give life another try. He knew that to truly break that hold, the solution was going to be messy, and it was going to be extreme. And I think that's exactly what we see in this passage. Now, I'm sorry if you're new here. Uh, we are kind of messy as a church. We have a lot of issues, a lot of things going on. And I guess the question that we have to ask ourselves, I think in light of this passage, is are we prepared for the messy solution that Jesus might have for us in face of the evil things that we are facing? I wonder what demons, real or metaphorical, people are facing here in this room today. Today, I'm asking you to decide whether or not a potentially messy and extreme solution is going to be worth freeing you from that force. Is your depression finally at a level where you're ready to go seek help from someone? You know, it feels messy, it's time-consuming, it costs money, it's something like that. It feels scary. Is it finally at a place where you're willing to find a messy solution? Is your addiction, whether to drugs, alcohol, pornography, work, status, whatever it is, is it finally at a place where you're willing to actually seek out some help, where you're willing to tell it to another human being that it exists? Is your relationship with your spouse at a point where you need to bring someone from the outside in to help you get healthy, to help you wrap your mind around what's going on? I know it's messy, I know it's awkward, I know it's extreme. But sometimes our most messy, our most evil, our most chaotic, our most demonic problems require a messy solution. I think what we see in this passage is that Jesus is ready to go there. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we? Jesus wasn't concerned about the financial well-being of the people in town. Jesus wasn't concerned about his own well-being and going off to see this guy at the tombs. Jesus wasn't concerned about all of the chaos and drama that this was created. He was concerned about two, two human beings getting healthy, getting healed, getting right. And I wonder, or really I fear, how often are we sitting around, walking around, with this evil brokenness inside of us. Too afraid to lose job, to lose time, to lose relationships, to even just lose face to actually walk into the messy solution. Maybe you're considering following Jesus for the first time, like you wouldn't even say that you're a follower of Jesus, but the appearance of Christianity looks messy, right? look and you're like, oh, if, you know, if I'm a Christian, then, you know, I have to go to church and this guy's going to talk about demons for 45 minutes. Uh, I'm going to go and be a part of this group of people. I'm going to look foolish around my friends, won't be accepted around the people that I've been hanging out with anymore. I might have to give up this thing or that thing. Maybe Jesus just appears too messy for you. 
Maybe it's that messiness of Jesus that keeps you away from him. But the truth is that in the same way that he came into this demon-possessed men's lives, he is coming to you. That in the middle of all of your chaos, in the middle of all of your brokenness, in the middle of all of the terrible things that you've ever done, all of the terrible things you've, that have ever been done to you, that Jesus is actually coming to you. He's willing to get in there into the mess. He's willing to actually come, live for 30 years among the human beings, never actually sin, do anything wrong like we do. Then he's willing to climb up on the cross and carry all of those sins on his self and take them to the grave. He is willing to die alongside of them. That is the length to which he is willing to go for your messiness. Jesus is willing to take all of that mess on himself so that he might die the death that we deserve, that we might gain the life that he deserves. That life is available to you today. And it may look messy from the outside, but it is the only pathway towards salvation. It is the only way to actually be healed, to be made right, and not just sort of like made right with the other human beings, but made right with the cosmic creator of the universe, with the God who is in control of all things. That Jesus, in the most profound way possible, solved the, hugest, the biggest problem that has ever affected humanity, that we are separated from God, and he was willing to step into that mess to make a way for you and for me. That way is available to you today. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard, Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church, so we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.